This is JLL's Beyond Buildings podcast. A civil engineer, Alicia Maynard, forged her career in a man's world. She graduated from assistant on the tools in her father's shed in country New South Wales to high-profile organisations in the big smoke. Along the way, she was constantly challenging assumptions about what women could bring to the table. Sometimes even the practicalities of being a woman created awkward moments, such as needing the bathroom on an all-male construction site. Alicia is now General Manager of Sustainability and Technical Services at ISPT. She's excelling and inspiring by backing herself despite the knocks and encouraging her peers to do the same. Here she talks to JLL's Lee McLaughlin in an internal JLL diversity and inclusion event held in September that frankly was too good not to share with you on this podcast, a show about the people working tirelessly to create modern, inclusive places where we live, work and play. I'm Rebecca Kent. Thanks again, everyone, for uh, joining us today. For those I've not met, my name is Lee McLaughlin and I'm the Account Director of the ISPT Portfolio for JLL. As I mentioned, we're here today to celebrate who we are and thanks for taking time for being part of the session because events like this promote conversations about diversity and inclusion and the need to keep pressing for equality. So today's conversation is around gender equity. For those of you who do know me, you know I'm fairly passionate about diversity and inclusion and always up for a chat. Actually, during one of these discussions, I was asked a really great question which sets the scene for today. So what's the difference between gender equity, gender equality and women's empowerment? Gender equity is the process of being fair to women and men. Equity leads to equality. Historically, where there's been gender inequality, it's generally been experienced by women. So a critical aspect of getting to gender equality is the empowerment of women. It's not a discussion about promoting one over the other. It's about fairness and creating environments that allow both to thrive. And the stats support this. I think most people would be surprised to know that female university students have actually outnumbered their male counterparts since 1987. In fact, last year, the ratio for each to higher education students was 72 males per 100 females. Yet women are underestimated, underrepresented at every level in corporate Australia and hold less than 30% of executive roles. And as you might expect, these challenges are more pronounced for women of colour or who identify as part of the LGBTI community. And of course, there has been progress. There's a lot, there is positivity there. The 2019 Women in the Workplace study showed that in the last five years we have seen progress. We have seen women rise to top levels of companies. What was really interesting is it revealed a change to what the main barrier was for how they got there. Historically, we've talked about the glass ceiling preventing women from getting to senior leadership positions. In actual fact, one of the biggest obstacles women have faced is actually much earlier in their career. It's actually the first step to manager. As it stands, gender parity won't be achieved in our lifetime. So fixing this broken rung, as it's being called, is the key to achieving equality and the pipeline to a diverse group of future leaders. And I'm absolutely wrapped to have one of the most inspiring business people I've met joining us today to talk about her journey, her growth as a business person and the importance of people who genuinely push for a level playing field for everyone. I'd like to introduce Alicia Maynard, General Manager of Sustainability and Technical Services at ISPT. Welcome, Alicia. Thanks, Lee. Thanks for uh, having me today. And I'm so pleased to be sitting on the virtual couch with you. Thanks again for joining us. Look, perhaps just to set the scene for um, people who are on the call today, could you give us a little bit about your background and your role at ISPT? 
Absolutely. So for those who don't know ISPT, we're fully funded by superannuation. So we represent more than 50% of working Australians who have their retirement savings invested in our properties. As Lee said, I manage the sustainability and technical services function. So that means I'm responsible for our sustainability strategy, both the development and implementation of it, as well as leading our engineering operations, making sure that our buildings are running as efficiently as possible and making sure our buildings are safe and comfortable for our customers. I also work with our investors to understand what their expectations are, particularly in the environment and the growing social responsibilities that we face and make sure that we embed that in terms of the way that we operate our business and our properties. So it's a big role. Look, you've had an interesting career uh, in areas that haven't always had a large cohort of women. Um, can you take us through some of that journey? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to start with my upbringing in country New South Wales, about five hours west of Sydney is where I grew up. And as a child, and um, certainly my later schooling years, I absolutely loved maths. But I was also really inspired by my father, who is a fitter and turner, and he was always tinkering in the shed. And I loved just being with him and and um, being the uh, the trade assistant, as he used to call me, handing him the tools. So I really wanted to study engineering, but my parents didn't have the money to send me to university. Common occurrence in country New South Wales when you don't have direct access to tertiary education and no clear pathway. But my maths teacher, she set a path for me. She encouraged me to explore engineering as a career choice. And I set about trying to see if there were scholarships available for um, students who um, were in the situation that I was in. And I was successful in achieving a $5,000 scholarship to study engineering at UTS. And, um, and that was an annual scholarship that was aimed to cover all of my expenses, which I'm sure you can imagine um, in no way came close. So I studied civil engineering, I graduated with first class honours, top of my class, and um, I think the adversity that I faced, uh, as you could probably gather, started well before getting into university. So when I started university, I didn't really notice that all of my lecturers were male. I didn't really notice that, particularly in the senior classes that I was in, that I was only the only female. In all honesty, I was just grateful to be there. Since then, I've worked in all aspects of a building life cycle, design, construction, including on-site and in operation. I've worked in civil infrastructure on major projects um, around the world. My first job, however, was with Forbeshire Council. As I said, um, with that scholarship, I started working with Forbeshire Council on the design of roads and civil infrastructure in Central West New South Wales. Wow. That's, um You've come a long way. Uh, so the kid from country New South Wales myself, I fully appreciate what you're, what you're talking through. Um, I'm sure you've got a few interesting stories um, along the way. I know we've, we've had some, <laughs> some funny chats. Um, and I've, I quite often find that when you're going through an education process with people, um, there's not a lot of malice necessarily intended, but you know, coming at things head on isn't always the great way to do teaching moments. So um, what, what about uh, some examples of where you found the right time to do a teaching moment, just to highlight to someone perhaps what some of their language uh, or actions uh, might mean? So I'll, I'll start with a funny story, but then um, I'll talk about something a little bit more serious. So as I said, my first job was with Forbeshire Council working across um, the civil infrastructure upgrades and, and surveying the like across the Shire. I was the first female engineer with the Shire and um, I found myself um, on a daily basis out on the outskirts of the Shire um, with a group of, of usually big burly blokes. Um, we're all there working away. 
And um, as you could probably imagine, there weren't uh, readily available bathroom facilities uh, <laughs> for us out there. So there was some quite awkward um, but humorous moments where we were trying to negotiate um, how we would manage that, that circumstance. And as you said, Lee, it's, it is absolutely no malice. And once I pointed out to the guys that um, I too needed to relieve myself, um, we worked out a solution. But it was just about having a conversation and breaking down a, a barrier there. And as you say, a little bit of, of education, perhaps for all of us in terms of having a conversation and, and making sure that everyone was comfortable. Probably the more serious example that I can provide is, I found myself, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on in, in more detail, I found myself at a position in my career where I was working on a project that, um, that was, it was a leading uh, structural engineering project in Sydney and, and I really was interested in the sustainability aspects of that. Um, and I pursued the conversation with my boss around how could we make that building more sustainable and, and he, he wasn't really keen to have that conversation with me. And it was a couple of months after that project that I actually found in my cohort of engineers with that particular organisation that I didn't get a pay rise that year. And, and I spoke to my boss around what the reasons for that was and, and he simply said, you're not technically in alignment with the function of the organisation. And I said to him, I think that I am. I think that I'm approaching it from a different perspective. But nonetheless, I shared with him some industry data in terms of the emergence of sustainability as a, an important function of the business. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to see eye to eye and I did leave that organisation, but being in a position, I think, when you're facing a pay differential, um, it does go to that conversation, Lee, that you positioned this forum with in terms of fairness and equity. And that's what my focus has been going forward from there to make sure that irrespective of what skill set I bring or irrespective of what ideas I bring, that it's considered in the same light as anyone else who's bringing a new idea or something to an organisation. I think that's a great lead into my next question because I think you know, most professionals, um, they good old-fashioned qualities, you know, grit, resilience, drive, attitude are a huge part in their career and that's, you know, that story you touched on is a great example of that. But um, when you look back, what or who have been enablers to your development as a business person? You know, have you had a sponsor along the way that's really been important to your growth? Absolutely, a network, I would say, of mentors, coaches and trusted advisors. Um, these are people who I admire, uh, who are experts in various fields um, across the industry, people who I know I can trust and I have worked very hard in developing those relationships so that they can be very honest and open. We can share mutual learnings. Um, some of those people are very highly regarded CEOs now and people who I know I can pick the phone up and say, hey, I'm facing this situation, what do you think? And, and they'll very openly say, look, here's how I would deal with that or more, more importantly, share their own learnings and, um, and mistakes or insights into different situations. The other thing I've done has been to invest in myself with continual training and learning. So whether that be with formal training programs um, or education or the like, particularly non-technical. Um, in the role that I am in today, a lot of my work comes down to influencing, negotiation and founded by a communication skill. So I've done a lot of practice um, in public speaking and formal training in that as well. So it's really interesting you did touch on that network of mentors. Um, I was reading a, um, was a LinkedIn survey a few years back and they actually said there was overwhelming belief by women that a mentor was really important to their growth but only one in five had actually had one. 
Um, and half of those said the reason they hadn't was because they couldn't find someone who was the right fit for them. So I'd be really interested to know, you know, what was it about your first mentor that made you choose them? And how did they influence your growth? So my, my first mentor um, is an inspirational leader um, still today, Siobhan Tuhill, who is the Group Head of Sustainability at Westpac. At the time, she was the Head of Sustainability with Stockland. And I heard her speak at a conference and I thought, this woman uh, embodies everything that, that I want to achieve and, and certainly where I want to take my career. So I took a deep breath and I reached out to her and asked if she would have a coffee with me and start a conversation. And that gave rise to more than a decade of advice and, and support that Siobhan has provided to me, um, as well as introducing me to others in her network, which has been absolutely fabulous. Um, with that, as I said, the trust and honesty that, that we have shared in, in evolving our relationship and, and as I said, like the permission to get things wrong and learn from her mistakes, um, you know, really in, in the openness and, and spirit of, um, of, of passing forward, you know, the mentoring and advice that she received, um, I've certainly been a great beneficiary of that. So as, absolutely starting with, with, a, with a big breath and saying, can I have a coffee with you? So, and that paid dividends for me. That's fantastic. And that's a really good story. Um, the career trajectory isn't always a smooth progression forward and up. Um, has there been a time when you've made a career decision and you just quickly realised, no, it's not, not for me, it's not aligned to my goals and my values? And if it was, how did you get it back on track? So, so as I said, I found myself in a position where um, I was interested in sustainability. And I'll give a little bit of a story to, to explain this, this situation. I, as, I, as I said, I started um, my life with this passion and interest in maths and, and had um, an amazing role model, my dad and my maths teacher who really believed in my ability, so that set me on a pathway. I was working on this, the structural design of a commercial tower in Sydney and that tower was, um, it was um, in place of two existing towers. Now those existing buildings were only 20 years old and I found myself in a position of thinking about these two buildings and the time that I was investing into the structural design of this new tower and thinking, well, what mistakes did the engineers make who designed these two towers that led now to only a short while afterwards them being demolished? The lifespan of concrete and steel is in excess of 100 years. So in no way they'd met their full um, design potential. So as I said, I started a conversation with my boss around looking at um, material selection and design principles of low energy, long life and loose fit. And, and he um, was focused on delivering the structural design and encouraged me to, to deliver that. But I felt so morally um, compounded to act on that interest and the, um, the obligation that I felt to any of the occupiers of that building for the next 100 years to make sure that that building met their needs. So, I made a decision to explore sustainability as a career choice. I went and studied a master's degree and I found myself, um, as I said, perhaps in the view of my peers, not really, um, not really valued from, from the skill set that I was developing. And it, it came at the expense of my belief in myself. So I lost a lot of self-confidence in that process. And, the sad thing with that is that now sustainability is seen as integral to good building design or good building operation. In fact, from our investors, it's seen as critical to our company's success that we are considered 
um, that we consider sustainability as fundamental to, to our investment. So that was in the early, um, the early 2000s when sustainability was not cool. When I decided to leave, as I said, it's probably from a self-confidence perspective, the lowest that I have been in my life. But I'm immensely proud that I backed myself. It has, that single decision has led purely to the success that I have had throughout my career and where I am today. And as I said, it, it honestly has paid the biggest dividend to back myself. You know, that story that you said, you know, that you, you stood up for yourself and your confidence did take a bit of a knock. So my question is twofold. How big of a part do you think the confidence gap plays? And if it is a factor, how do leaders empower women to believe in their ability and find their voice to do it? Yeah, so building on my self-confidence has been, I'd probably say, a lifelong ambition. And it's, it's been about taming my inner critic. Um, even though I've received many industry awards, management and peer accolades, I've adopted the voice of one or two naysayers over time and let that view define myself. So as I said, um, I've invested in myself. The public speaking training that I have done has taught me how to hear objective feedback or take feedback objectively to keep my nerves under control and using vocal warm-up techniques um, before I'm about to speak, whether that's in a board meeting or whether that's in a, um, a conference session to thousands of people, using um, breathing techniques, um, um, using pauses and, and the like to stop the adrenaline and to focus the brain on the message that I know is important and people want to hear. The other thing I'd say um, is I found myself, to, so to answer the second part of your question, I found myself in positions also as I've grappled with um, you know, what value I bring and, and that initial perception of, of some of my trusted peers that I was working in a field that was not focused on deriving value or you know, was seen as a softer um, profession. I found myself sitting at a table or invited to amazing sessions and, and feeling like the imposter at the table. I think the imposter syndrome um, was certainly rife. Um, there's a saying that, um, that circulates in, in mental health forums around speak even if your voice shakes. And with, again, the advice of my network, my trusted mentors and coaches uh, and sponsors, I have learnt to speak even when I've got the quiver in my voice, even when my heart is pounding in my chest and um, my hands are shaking. I've learnt to take that, that big breath and just say what I think is important. And what I found is that the people who are around the table with me, they'll take my message, they'll hear my words and they won't judge me for my nerves but encourage me to keep going. So I think surrounding yourself with those types of people who aren't going to judge you, but for, for um, you know, that, that self-confidence or, or self-confidence deficit, but they will nurture you and um, encourage you to be at your best. I, I remember uh, we do a lot of uh, public speaking at, uh, at JLL and a lot of classes and things. And I remember uh, one of our HR business partners got up and said, you know, I think the statistic is most people would rather die than do public speaking. So it is, it is a very brave thing um, that, uh, that you're sharing with us today. So I do thank you for that. Um, so my other question is, I um, also thought it was a really, most people are familiar with Cheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook. She once described how a freelance film director called out bias before it could even come up. So the director walked into the negotiation. She was armed, ready with her pitch and her stats. And she began by saying, I want to say up front that I'm going to negotiate. And the research says you're going to like me less when I do. So then how do we overcome unconscious bias and stereotyping? So 
from my perspective and the circumstances that I found over my career, I think awareness is critically important. Awareness of self, I think that we all carry a lens by which we see things by and being very clear on what that lens is and how that would shape then our interpretation of a situation or as I said, how we hear things, whether it be feedback or someone's recount of a situation or the like, as well as others, raising others' awareness of their way of seeing things as well. I'll share another story here, and this is a, a recent story. As part of my role in ISPT, I do a lot of traveling and I love my job. Um, I think of our 120 buildings like children, all with their own little quirks and foibles and with the right level of encouragement, they have the opportunity to perform at their best. But to, to achieve that outcome, it means you've got to know the bricks and mortar and you've got to know the people on site who are running the buildings. So I spend a lot of time traveling um, and, and making sure that, that I can deliver on that. Um, I've had people approach me in my time at ISPT asking about my children. I have two daughters, a six-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And, a I've had people asking me about where they are or, or what they're up to while mummy's traveling. And I try to use a little bit of humor to diffuse this situation, um, but also, again, bring light to the seriousness that I have a husband who is more than capable of looking after our children. Um, in fact, um, he, when I um, returned to work after the birth of our second child, he um, dropped down to part-time working hours and I returned back to full-time working hours. He really saw that as an opportunity to be part of, of our daughter's lives um, in a way that he hadn't previously. So when people have made those comments to me, uh, as I said, I know it's from their perspective in the way that they may view life, but I've made jokes about that I have my children stuffed in my suitcase or I've just dropped them off at my hotel room that then brought light to whether they would ask that, that question of my husband um, or any of our male colleagues um, if they also were travelling to that same extent. So as I said, I think, I think we've got to make the unconscious conscious and share our stories. I've heard loads of stories of other people in a situation, particularly around return to work and even when men have dropped back to a part-time working arrangement or have taken parental leave, which I think is absolutely amazing to see that um, equity of um, leave provisions made to everyone. But just, as I said, sharing our stories, calling it out and making the unconscious conscious. It's a really great example of one of those teaching moments. So just really. using that sort of gentle approach to say, hey, um, you know, the language, the dialogue needs to change a little bit. So I love that. Look, I'm paraphrasing, um, and this is my last question, and then I can see we've got a huge amount of questions coming through, um, so I would like to open it up. But if I'm paraphrasing, Gloria Steinem once said that the story, the struggle for equality belongs to no single feminist or to any one organisation, but to the collective efforts of all who care about human rights. So it goes without saying we've had a lot of progress um, in the past 50 years and there's been some phenomenal, phenomenally powerful men and women um, who've put their voice behind advocating for change. Um, nothing like ending on a really expansive, solve the world question, um, but where to next? I feel incredibly grateful for the people who have supported me. And again, that, that moral compulsion I felt when I was a structural engineer and, and wanting to, to look into sustainability, I feel that same moral compulsion to pay forward the support and advice that, that people have provided 
um, to me off their own bat. It's, it's never something that someone has to do as part of their job or, or the like. So, um, so I really I want to work with others as well and help people see their potential. My maths teacher, as I said, she started um, the wheels in motion for me considering that I could even be an engineer um, in country New South Wales. There aren't many job, job opportunities for people who like maths. Um, so I owe, I owe that to, to pass that forward. And I, I honestly, I don't see myself as a female engineer. And I think that's because when I started university, as I said, I'd, I'd already faced socioeconomic adversity and getting to university, um, you know, day one was, was a massive accomplishment. So I don't see myself as a female engineer. I just see myself as an engineer. And going forward from here, as I said, paying forward the opportunity to work with people, help people see their potential, and really honing my leadership and business skills to be my best self. Uh, one of the questions that have come through, um, which I think is a perfect segue from what you were just talking about, um, have all of your best mentors been women or have you met men who've also been champions for you as well? I've had uh, both inspiring male and female mentors and sponsors. And just a, a point of clarification, which I think is probably useful for this group, that for me, a mentor is someone who um, you might work with on a one-to-one -one basis and, as I said, share their experiences and um, give you those little little tips and tricks. A sponsor is someone who, when you're not in the room, will represent you, your views, your expertise and the like. So some of, some of my mentors and sponsors have been my managers. Others have been, as I said, people from an industry perspective that I've been inspired by. My first um, sponsor, I, um, I think, was probably when I was at Forbes Council um, and as I said, first female engineer there, so um, unbeknownst to me, probably busting a few uh, glass ceilings there. Um, the director of engineering said to me that he would be my work dad, and uh, and if I ever needed to talk to him about anything, that um, that he would would be there to um, to support me. Um, and he also advocated for me um, across the council to uh, to get a slight pay increase to my $5,000 uh, scholarship. So uh, it covered more than just um, my living expenses. So yeah, I think, um, as I said, you know, male or female, generally they're people who, um, who I've been inspired by, but some of my managers have also, you know, really supported me. And as I said, when I've not been in the room in particular. Absolutely fantastic. Um, you can see the questions are coming through um, thick and fast, uh, Alicia. I think it's going to take two of us to to read, read through them. I might get you to um, pick one out. Um, so one of the questions there was around the training sessions, um, particularly public speaking, that I have participated in. And I've done, I'd say, probably half a dozen uh, public speaking training sessions. The two that I'll, I'll call out in particular that have been standout for me, um, one was a one-to-one -one session that I did over um, an eight-week period with um, someone who was trained in, in the media field. And um, that, that session involved being filmed and honing my strengths um, so that when I delivered um, a speech or what have you, that people focused on the message and the things that I already were good at rather than um, some of the, the things that creep into our speaking patterns over time, whether it's the clicking of the pen or the folding of the paper or the swaying or, or what have you. 
I think they're things that, that people will do. Um, they, when you're nervous, your, your body manifests that, those nerves in different ways, including um, your voice raising to your throat rather than sitting in your diaphragm. So the one-to-one -one sessions I found were really, really helpful to help um, um, create my, my own awareness around what my strengths were and make my public speaking even better in those areas. The other standout program that I've done has been in fashioning a story and how to create a speech that, um, that sells the value, positions it around the why. Why is this important? Why should people listen? Go to some of the facts and leave with a great uh, call to action. So, and I think both are important, both the way that you speak, but as well as how you craft the message to have the most impact. How have you found, you know, we talk about um, that sometimes you're not actually going to get 100% of things done. And particularly with emerging leaders, uh, again, male or female, uh, educating them that that's okay. Because if, you know, if you've only got 100 points of energy, you've just got to work out where you're going to put that energy. Um, and particularly the environment that we're in now, um, having the emotional intelligence to work that through. So I'm really interested, you know, as a leader, um, how have you learnt that or how are you teaching uh, others around you that there's so much you can get done and that's okay? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, um, for the field that I work in, I'm surrounded by, um, I would say, perfectionists. <laughs> People um, with that, that technical focus and, and wanting to get 100% right 100% of the time. But we're often faced with situations where we need to make decisions quickly or act on something and, and set a, a, a pathway so that our stakeholders are engaged and informed as to how we're approaching a, a project or a problem. So in terms of the team that I manage, I use a strengths-based leadership approach and that means I work one-on-one -on -one with my team to understand, similar to that public speaking example that I gave, what they're good at and then to set their projects and tasks around that. But for us to work collaboratively across the team so that the, the breadth of experience and diversity of skill sets that we have at the team then fulfils the needs of our team across the organisation. So it may be that um, one person focuses on a particular um, subject matter and someone else does something else. It may mean that someone works as an external facing um, part of our team and others are in the engine room doing some of the more technical stuff. Um, but also managing people's expectations. Um, I find myself, um, and um, over the last six months in particular, my diary is very full. Um, but managing people's expectations in terms of what we can and can't deliver within a time frame or setting a clear understanding of what the deliverables are within a time frame I think is really important and doing that in a proactive manner rather than finding you're running out of time or striving for that 100% outcome when our stakeholder was only expecting 80% um, and then we would deliver the 20% afterwards. Fantastic. And um, we've had a couple more questions. Uh coming through there, Alicia. Did you want to pick out one of those? I'll talk to the, the mentoring one. As I said, my, my view is that it is actually critically important to, to pay forward the opportunity to mentor people. And I have, um, I have been doing that for probably the last 10 years or so. I started informally by just reaching out to some of my peers um, and some of my junior peers across the organisations that I've been working in 
um, offering coffee and, and seeing if, if they wanted to talk about a project that they were working on or stakeholders that we were working with. And I've subsequently participated in formal mentoring arrangements, whether that be with the National Association of Women in Construction and their mentoring program, as well as um, a couple of the universities in Sydney, I've also participated in their um, industry mentoring programs. So this, the formal ones are, are much more structured. You don't know the person. Um, so it takes a little bit of effort to understand really where you can support them and provide advice and value, whether it be from a career perspective or whether it be from that self-confidence and, and um, honing the authentic voice. Um, but I still have a, a, a group of, um, of, of peers across the industry who, as I said, I reach out to check in to see how they're going. Um, I've supported some of those people through career transitions. I've supported some of them through a, developing a business case around pay rises. Um, and I've supported some of them in, um, in moving from a, a technically um, specialist related field into a general managerial related field. Fantastic. I think you touched on an interesting, and this is a question without notice, um, you touched on helping a friend write a business case for a, a pay review. Now, financial security is quite often a big barrier um, and financial education is a big barrier for a lot of women in independence and, and, and moving through their lives. Um, how did you find writing that business case? What was that education process for that person that, um, that, you know, that they were able to reach out to you and, and the type of dialogue and, and uh, critical thinking that you were helping them with? Critical thinking absolutely is the key. Um, so something I've come to realise is that this is not personal. It's not a judgment of your self-worth. Um, it is a, a, a reflection of the, the output that you um, deliver and then um, the contribution you make from a business perspective. So, so as I said earlier on, um, coming from my own experience and, and, the, and finding out um, you know, relatively early in my, in my um, career that I'd lost pay parity with, um, with my cohort of, of engineers um, was quite a shocking um, and devastating experience, let me say. And, um, and as I said, learning from that experience and that it, it's, not, it's not personal, it's not a reflection of my self-worth, doing industry research. Um, I mentioned previously across my network of, of mentors and, um, and sponsors and coaches and the like across the industry, I keep in regular contact with a recruiter. I do that for, um, for my own um, interest and, and to see how the industry is evolving and how sustainability is emerging, as I said, as a, as a critical um, skill set. But I also do it from the perspective of making sure that, that as this new emerging field, or perhaps it's not so much emerging uh, today, um, that, that it, is, you know, it is seen as, as a, a fundamental function. So I, I worked with um, this particular candidate uh, who was a, um, an architect to do some industry benchmarking, both on jobs that were uh, publicly advertised on SEEK, as well as encourage her to reach out to other architects that I had a relationship with, so I introduced her to them, as well as the recruiters that I know, so that she could effectively do a benchmarking activity of similar roles across the industry um, and then what their, um, their uh, salary band was. And, and that effectively then set out a, um, a compelling um, comparison then for her role compared to others in the industry of where she should be. And the feedback from her manager was that that was the most compelling um, 
a business case that he'd seen around a, uh, a salary rise, which um, was, I think is, is a testament to taking the emotion out of it and saying, well, here from, from a, you know, a pure industry comparison perspective, these are the jobs, these are their responsibilities, that's com comparative to where I'm at and here's the, the pay difference. So I think that, um, that that's warranted. So yeah, and, and as I said, a lot of this is, is regulating that voice in your head to say, well, what is it then? How can we um, take the emotion out? How can we create a compelling value proposition that's around the contribution that, that I make? Um, and then um, equate that to then, you know, what should I get paid to do that? I think that was a very, very valuable question. So thank you. Um, so that is a challenging conversation um, that, that people have. Um, I really like this one question here, and then I, I know that we've got to let you go, and I'll do some closing remarks. But um, look, it can be, the question is, it can be difficult when managing a large team to prioritise your own needs over the team members. So, what methods do you use to achieve the right kind of balance? So, one of the training sessions that I've done, which um, probably others on this call have as well, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, has been really important for me to understand how I should spend my time. So when I say that my diary is uh, fairly jam-packed, it's because I've created opportunities in my diary, whether it on a daily or weekly basis, to, to do my own work, as well as then the time that I spend um, supporting my team, as well as the work that I do um, working with our internal and external stakeholders. But I've structured my diary so that I at the beginning and end of my week, I look to what I need to do. I set out on a monthly basis the deliverables for that month. So I've got a, a, a task planner to the end of the year um, and we've got some big projects coming up. So um, definitely critical to make sure that, um, that I hit those deliverables and I engage uh, proactively, as I said, with the stakeholders that, um, that those projects relate to. So setting out my diary with working blocks, setting out um, at the beginning of the week to understand what's, what's required at the beginning of the week and looking um, back on the week, did I do that? What do I need to do the next week? But as I said, the seven habits of highly effective people, um, I found that, that training to be really important to focusing on the things that are important but not the things that are urgent and then really taking that proactive approach to my time management. I feel like there's a whiteboard involved. <laughs> I love a whiteboard session. I absolutely love a whiteboard session. And um, one of the challenges in, in a remote working environment is, uh, is how you uh, effectively collaborate when you're not around a whiteboard. Uh, so I've, I've, I've tried all of the uh, virtual whiteboard uh, tools, but certainly enjoying being uh, in the office today and, um, and having a whiteboard at my disposal. <laughs> it's the little things, right? At the moment, it's the little things. Alicia, thank you so much for today and paying it forward by sharing your story. Um, the feedback that we've got coming through is just overwhelming. So um, everyone, um, passing on my thanks from everyone who's on this call. Um, I'd like to leave everyone with a closing thought. Uh, the World Economic Forum's most recent global gender gap report still predicts gender parity is at least 200 years off. But the research is clear. Gender equality is as good for business as it is for individuals. Diverse teams and companies produce better results and higher revenues and profits, which leads to more opportunity for everyone, not just women. So I'd like to leave you with a bit of a challenge. Be an advocate for change. Question your personal biases and don't be afraid to speak up in situations that don't meet a basic human right of equality. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you again, Alicia. Um, I hope everyone stays well and, um, and safe. And um, I look forward, I can't wait to see you again in person sometime soon. 
Thanks, Lee. Thanks, everyone. And thanks for all the questions. More than happy if people want to um, get in contact offline and, um, and start a conversation. That was the first episode of JLL's Beyond Buildings podcast, which aims to share the stories and ambitions of people shaping the spaces around us for the better. If you enjoyed listening, make sure you subscribe via your favourite listening app so you get alerted when the next episode lands. And by the way, we've got another show, JLL's Perspectives podcast, which covers the latest trends and insights in the real estate sector. Just pop it into your Google search. Thanks for listening. I'm Rebecca Kent.